What's up, Gator Nation? Good morning, Gator Nation. You're listening to Gator Nation. And the Gators have the biggest lead of the day. You're listening to Morning Edition on WUMT. From the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications. Three, two, one, we're live. Hi, everyone. This is The Communicator, the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications podcast, where we dive into the latest in media, picking the brains of top faculty and staff around the Gator Nation. I'm Matt Abramson, Director of Media Services for WFT with Lorenzo Pasava and Catherine Flaherty. Thanks for joining us. Hey, happy to be here. Today, we're speaking with Dan Wendells, an advertising professor here at the College of Journalism and Communications, who also happens to be one of the most beloved faculty members at UF and has an IMDb page that most would envy. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Welcome. Hey, thanks for coming out. Thanks so much for having me. So I've had some chances to run in with you and get to collaborate. And I know that you're awesome from the standpoint of an advertising expert and great as far as being able to work with students and get the most out of marketing campaigns. But you have a whole previous career that I only discovered recently. So tell us a little bit about what you did before you got into academia. So um, prior to getting into academia, I worked in the film business. I graduated from the University of Oregon with a degree in telecommunications and film production on a minor in theater lighting. Uh, that led me to Hollywood. And so I drove down in a, in a very small car with very little money, slept on a friend's couch for a few months looking for a first job in the film industry. And so you're saying it's as glamorous as we've all heard. Yeah, yes, exactly. I think I had $400 to my name when I got my first job. And that was in lighting. So I had a focus in lighting in film and also in theater. And so my first job actually was at a lighting rental warehouse. It was very unglamorous. And we pulled lights off shelves for movies, but I got to learn the equipment and meet people. And that was kind of my entry point into the film industry. That's wonderful. And so uh, how long were you with doing the warehouse position before you started really getting involved in, in some of these big names? At least three years longer than I needed to, which was three years. Um, no, it was a wonderful learning opportunity. And I was there for about three years building connections. And I would occasionally be brought in on weekend commercial projects where I was able to learn on the fly. And then once I built up enough contacts and felt I had enough enough work available, I made the transition from a steady job to more of what's a freelance job doing film lighting. Excellent. So give us some of like the greatest hits, some of the, the films that you think were some of your favorites or the ones that you humble brag the, the most about? Well, so there's two stories I love to tell. One is just my first day working in film lighting, working in the lighting rental warehouse. And so that very first day, we loaded a bunch of lights onto a big truck. I had no idea what these lights were. It was filled to the ceiling and we pulled up on the Sony lot and we opened a stage and it was the movie Hook they were filming. And so there was a huge ship in a tank of water and it was absolutely surreal. And so that day I was like, I made the right choice. Oh yeah, Rufio. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> Three years later is when I made my transition to film. But one of my favorite movies was working on the movie Amistad. It was a period piece. And so we did the filming locations in the Northeast. We converted towns from circa 2002 to probably 18... 60. And so it was really amazing to see the transition of an area of a town into a period piece and just being part of that narrative story, knowing that it was really history was wonderful. I think of so many industries that are very local, like, you know, the Gainesville TV market and how a reporter nowadays, a multimedia journalist does five, six positions from filming, reporting, editing, 
posting on social, doing additional web stories. Has the field of lighting and electrical in the film context changed, evolved with new technology or consolidated for fewer people doing more work? Well, it, it depends what level you're working on. So I was working on extremely large budget movies, so often over $100 million. And in those instances, we were very specialized doing one department, one department only. In experience and working on lower productions, you wore many hats. And so it depends more on budget than anything else. At the largest level, there are still crews of hundreds of people that are working on these movies. And so each department has its own specialty when it's that scope. But you also have to be ready and willing to do a lot of other jobs when you move on to smaller projects. And you don't always have control what what the budget is, what you're going to work on. But it varies from project to project. Do you have like a, a strange project you've ever had to do? You know, I've done uh, commercials for a plumber where everyone that we had on camera was actually a child playing the plumber, playing the receptionist, et cetera. And it was, it was bizarre, <laughs> at least from my experience. Anything weird like that? I think the one that's the most unique, and again, I'm really dating myself, I worked on Space Jam and not the one that came out like five years ago, yeah. but the one that came out like 25 years ago. It's still cool. And that was really bizarre because Michael Jordan would come in onto an enormous green screen set and we had a bunch of NBA players that were not stars like him that were dressed head to toe in green outfits. And so he was playing basketball against these NBA players that were completely in green. So that was really interesting because it was really hard as a young person working on a film set to see how this was going to turn into the movie that it turned into. And so there's a whole nother, you know, hundreds of people after we finish production that go into building all of that um, on the digital side. So that was probably the most unique experience I ever worked on. Excellent. Hey, so this is Arnton. I'm just wondering with your time in, in the industry and the amount of years that you spent working on film sets and seeing different types of productions, you know, what maybe advice do you have for people who are either entering the field or have been in it for a while and might think maybe this isn't what I'm cut out for, or maybe I would like to explore a different creative field that might be related, but there's other options out there. And maybe how did you navigate that kind of journey? It's a great question. Um, again, a lot of how your career develops in film depends on what level you you enter. So the budget is just about everything. As a 22-year-old who got in my car and drove to Hollywood, I wanted to work on the biggest movies I could find. And so I did a very deliberate path. I think on that path, finding an area of specialization, something you love is key. And there are dozens of departments, right? So I was interested in lighting, but I could have just as easy been into, you know, operating the camera or doing costume or props or editing. But finding that one area and spending a lot of time building your skill set in that one area. So as I said, I worked three years in a lighting rental warehouse, a job I could have got at age 16, but it was invaluable. I met tons of people. I learned how the lights worked. I learned how to build lighting plans. And I was prepared when I finally made that transition. If you're going to work in a much smaller or lower budget, it's about how can you be lean and mean? And how do you get sort of a little bit of knowledge in every single department? Because you're going to be, if you're the director, you may be called on to move a light. You may be called on to act. You may be called on to do editing, putting your credit card down to help fund the project. And so understanding the level that you want to get into and then kind of looking at the landscape and seeing how can I best prepare myself for that specific level? I think it's incredibly challenging if you're going to try to do multiple levels, right? It's almost like an entirely different project or industry depending on the budget. 
So do you look at natural light and go blasphemy? No, I love, I love nat natural light is great. I mean, yeah. magic hour. I mean, that's the best time of the day, right? That's when panic sets in on a movie set because it's the best <laughs> time of the day and all the lights go away and maybe it's just a bounce card or something. So no, natural light is amazing. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that because I love shooting on Sony's and just natural light and crank up the ISO and let the camera compensate, but utilize what you have there, which might be practicals that do cast light into the scene, but use what you have at your own advantage. Move a floor lamp if need be. You don't have to spend thousands of dollars to pull off the look, right? Exactly. I mean, one of the best like cheap lights that almost everybody had back until a few years ago was the infamous torch light that you'd have next to your couch. Why? Because it just bounces off the ceiling and it gives a nice soft glow to everything. So very simple lighting, especially with today's cameras. It's much easier with digital. With film, a lot of times we had to compensate for the film stock and, and just the light had to be so intense to register. So with today's digital cameras, the amount of light you need has drastically reduced. And so you can do a lot with a little. Are lights uh, fully LED or is it still kind of a, a wild mix of types of it's it's definitely a wild mix. There is a enormous amount of LED lighting in the film industry. Um, it is LED strips are used in almost every movie where you see any kind of little blinking or twinkling or nice little under lights. Um, so those are huge parts for very close up scenes. But the big scenes on stage still require enormous amounts of lights to, you know, if you're taking a dark stage and trying to make it look like it's 12 o'clock noon on a sunny day, you need an enormous amount of light to do that. So having worked in Hollywood and doing lighting for a number of years, what really made you want to make that transition to something outside of Hollywood and your case advertising? What was the impetus for that? And then, you know, what kind of made you say finally, like, all right, I'm going to try my hand at something else. I know it's a wonderful question. I, there is a certain amount, uh, there's a ceiling that you, that you run into very quickly at the, when you're working on big movies, one of the great aspects was I was able to specialize in something. One of the downsides of specialization is you're specialized. You are in that one very particular area. It's hard to jump out into other areas. And so I worked for about 10 years working on large movies. And at that point, the sort of key decision is, do I want to continue to move up in lighting, which would be becoming a gaffer, maybe move into cinematography eventually. And one of the big things that caused that shift was just it's the enormous time commitment. Movies are wonderful to work on, but you're often doing 14, 16 hours a day. You're often starting at 6 a.m. on a Monday and finishing at 5 a.m. on a Saturday. And then you have 24 hours off and start it all over again. So I wanted to get into something where I was able to have a little more creativity. Again, it sounds odd saying that there isn't a lot of creativity in film, but when you're siloed into one space, your creativity is limited by what you're doing. And I did love it, but I just felt it was time to move into something else. And honestly, I was getting older and it's really rough on your body. <laughs> it is a long, brutal, when you're on a, a hundred day production, it is really, really exhausting. And so that's kind of where I started looking around to say, what are some other things that I would love to do? And, you know, I found lighting because I love to do it. And I said, if I'm going to move, I need to really be excited about what that next move is going to be because it's going to be dramatic. I decided I want to step completely away from film. I decided that there was other things I want to do with my life. There's other things I want to engage with. And so I started looking around about, you know, what those things might be. There's a lot of downtime when you're doing film production. So you spend a lot of time feverishly setting up a, 
the next scene and then you hit pause and you just kind of sit quietly while they film it. And during those times, I would bring books and magazines and look at what are some cool opportunities and things to do. And I, I happened to, because I worked on a lot of TV commercials, that was advertising was something that was somewhat connected to what I was doing. I wasn't sure what part of advertising that I really liked. And so I started reading about it and I discovered this thing called strategy, which in my sort of basic way of looking at it is, are you curious about people? And I've always been curious about people. And so that was sort of what led me to this new path. How I got out of the film business, in all honesty, was I wrote a check to uh, grad school. I knew I would not do it if I didn't commit myself because you make really good money in film. And to walk away from that, I needed a little bit of force. And so once I applied and wrote the check, I knew I couldn't turn back, but I never regret that decision. And you went from Oregon to California to... University of Texas at Texas. Austin. Longhorns, yes. Oh, yeah. Quite a, quite a change. It was. I had never been to the state of Texas prior to that. And I, I remember distinctly, I was flying from Los Angeles to Austin, Texas to visit the campus. I was going to decide whether I was going to go there. I was already accepted. And the plane started kind of descending. And I looked out the side window and it's just barren and dust and I just was like, just turn the plane around. I just, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I just was, I sat back and the final approach comes out and I look out the window and the entire terrain has changed. And now it's rolling hills, the Texas Hill Country and trees and rivers and lakes. And I'm like, I don't know what happened in the last 15 minutes <laughs> going from West Texas to that, to Austin, but um, I loved it. And as soon as I touched down there and saw Austin and the um, University of Texas, I, I knew I was going to go there. I'm Glenn Richards from WUFT Amplified. If you're like me, you appreciate how special the local music scene is here in North Central Florida, featuring indie rock, hip-hop, bluegrass, and so much more. WUFT Amplified is Florida's music series, filmed right here in Weimar Hall. This show rocks, guys, seriously. And you might not realize that WUFT Amplified is produced entirely by UFCJC staff and students. To watch past episodes and discover your new favorite bands, check out wuft.org slash amplified. Okay, so fast forward, I assume two years through the program, and you're out of school. What, what's the next step? What happens after you graduate with your master's? So the next step is a, a degree in advertising led me again to a job in an advertising agency. It's not the only way you can go, but I certainly wanted to do that. I did have the opportunity to intern at advertising agencies while I was in grad school. So I was able to get some experience in several different departments. And I certainly learned that strategy was, it was my area of focus at the University of Texas. And it was also was the department I was most comfortable working in. So I applied for advertising jobs out of school and got a job as a junior strategist at a pretty large agency in Austin, Texas, and was able to make that transition and start working on clients right away. Excellent. And we've all seen the truth commercials, the different variations of the campaign that have come out through the years. Uh, you worked on one of the initiatives yourself, correct? Yes, I worked on a different aspect of the same brand. So truth is about um uh, smoking prevention. It's trying to encourage young people to not start. They also have an adult cessation program called Become an X, 
which is designed to help older people who have been smoking for years uh, quit smoking. It is not nearly as fun and not nearly as exciting as, as some of the edgy messages that go towards youth trying to prevent them from smoking. We're talking to people who, who love cigarettes and are now transitioning and trying to give that up. Um, but we, I spent probably two years working on our biggest campaign, um, doing research all over the country, focus groups in dozens of markets, trying to learn from people who had smoked for, you know, all the way from five to 20 years in order to find sort of that sweet spot and our very precise target audience that we would go after. Uh, and that led to that campaign, which was uh, out for several years. And But yeah, it was a great experience. I love the notion of becoming an ex, you know, breaking up with a habit, if you will, uh, which in this case perfectly fits into the, the di dynamic of somewhat being, you know, out of control with your addiction with nicotine. What, what were some of the data points and the themes that sort of directed how you were going to approach the campaign? Yeah, really interesting. One of the things that set us on a path for our specific target audience was a research study that was, I think, from the early 80s. Uh, we were in the early 2000s, so it was over 20 years old, but it was a documented study called The Stages of Change, and it's sort of this big picture behavioral research. And they had documented that people go through different stages of change, and we really had to hone in on people that were ready and willing to quit. And if you talk to people at any different stage of the game, you're more likely than not going to hit a lot of resistance. So it was part of us understanding that there was a very finite target audience and then also working with our client to make sure we agreed that that was the target audience that we, that we were going to go after. So that was probably the most interesting point in terms of figuring out what the strategy was going to be. We learned through many rounds of research um, that our target audience wholeheartedly rejected our ideas. Um, research is often seen as a way that is often kills creative ideas. In this space, it certainly did that, but it did it in a good way because we realized we were off. Not off by a lot, but you learn from people. Like we had the entire wrong color palette. We had the entire wrong sort of, um, all the imagery was off, uh, but we used that to get better and better and, and refine the message. And the ultimate product that we launched was very successful in encouraging people to quit. And again, I think 95% of people that try to quit fail within six months. So there's a huge failure rate. So um, we had to get everything right in order to make a dent. Dan, how much of audience analysis and knowing who you're speaking to, what level does that play into on your decision making on how you approach a marketing campaign or initiative? From a strategy point of view, it's it's absolutely everything. We could have discussions about how valuable that is to other people that work and touch the marketing mix. But from strategy, it's the thing we focus on the most. And we try to spend an enormous amount of time going in saying we we don't know. We don't even know what we don't know. We need to talk to people and learn from them. So the first conversations are less about us dictating to them or offering solutions and more about them just kind of opening up. And let's try to get to know who you are as an individual, what is going on in your life, and how can our brand possibly intersect with that? And so we spend a lot of time both in qualitative and quantitative research trying to understand that. Quantitative used more to validate uh, and qualitative used more, more to explore. On the larger campaigns, again, we spend an enormous amount of time, energy, resources to get that right. Um, everything that follows from that is dependent on us getting that right and getting that strategy right. And then we can set the other teams up for success. On a film set, is the audience in the forefront or is that so late in the process or, or so early in the process that it is not even perceived? So I was moving heavy lights around, so I'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> how okay. much I focused on that. I, I've worked on a variety of projects where the director 
to different degrees had the target audience in mind. And the best example that I'll, I'll use is working on one of the Spielberg movies. We had this very quick shot and it was pretty dark and there was some equipment in the shot. And we were all like, wait, 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 we, we have to move that. And he barked off and he said, I'm going to cut away from that. And even if I don't, no one in the theater is even going to recognize it. And I just, at that moment, you realize how he understands the audience to a degree that no other director does. He knows exactly what the person in the seat is going to see. And he also has the movie made in his head. So he knows I'm going to cut away before I even see that. So that's my one example of a director who really, really understood the final product. Excellent. That's the hope. That's, that's the, the anticipation that they're thinking about how you as the audience member will perceive the creation. So I'm curious kind of from the big picture down to anyone that's trying to practice advertising and marketing in a, in a better way than we currently are. What are some simple like things I should be thinking about if I need to put myself in a better position, marketing my business, myself, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be biased. I'm going to come from a strategy point of view, but I say spend time understanding your, your target audience. I mean, it's very easy in a world we live in now with all these digital platforms that we think everybody is going to see our message and they might, but the message has to be relevant for a very specific audience. Even if everybody sees it, which is inherently not true, you want your message to be as effective as possible for a very, very specific subset. And spending the time to get that right is the difference between advertising that works and advertising that is ignored. In my classes, I often ask them to pull out their phones and just say, how many ads are you seeing when you scroll through Instagram? How long are you spending on those? We see dozens, hundreds, thousands of ads a day, and we've, we're conditioned to ignore them. We pay attention to ads that speak to us in some relevant way. And the only way you can do that is by spending time to understand who that target audience is and refining your message again and again and going in with the understanding that we don't know the answer. Now, that always runs up against very realistic problems, which are time and budget. And so, to the extent possible, agencies try to push back as much as they can to better understand the target audience within the limitations or parameters that are on the project. The faster the project goes to market, I think the less likely it is to connect. Oftentimes, projects, they have to be in market very quickly. And I often feel that that's at the peril of all the dollars you're putting up. If you're going to spend a lot of money, let's hit pause and get it right rather than getting it out you know, in the market as quickly as we can. Have you seen any new movement as far as you mentioned platforms? Have you seen any newer sort of marketing avenues and, and platforms crop up? Uh, I'm thinking of, for instance, podcasting ads are still growing as far as the reach and the effectiveness. Um, TikTok is seemingly a place where one could market and, and do really well. And there's tons of other opportunities. A anything that strikes you as like a quickly growing area that's untapped? Well, untapped, I don't know. So TikTok obviously is on the top of mind for every single person, right? Advertising people want to desperately be involved with it because it's a, a younger crowd. They need to embrace those kinds of platforms. That's the new group that's going to replace your current customers. So if they're on TikTok, you need to figure out how to communicate with them. Again, I think that the rush to be somewhere often gets ahead of how to do that well. And so spending more time, right now there's a lot of content on TikTok. There's a lot of understanding that people who are influencers are commanding a lot of attention. Brands are trying to jump onto that sort of wave of how can I leverage an influencer? Um, I think there's going to be a limit about how long those influencers have credibility in promoting messages. 
everything is great when it first starts off, right? So if you're the first influencer and you're promoting the first big product promotion, people are going to respond. But what happens when there's a million influencers promoting 10 million products? It's very hard to stand out. And that's where we go back to understanding your audience, understanding what kind of storytelling can we use in a platform like TikTok? How can we be engaging in three seconds or less? How can we be engaging in a vertical format with music in the background? What's shareable? What's not? And so, yeah, obviously TikTok is the place to be right now. But I think anyone who thinks they have a solution is probably a little kind of a little ahead of the game. I think that there's a lot of learning that can still be done. Sure. Yeah. TikTok is sitting right now where Instagram was five years ago and YouTube was five years before that. So we'll be joking one time in the near future about all the old people that are on TikTok only. I remember when I got my first access to Facebook. <laughs> oh man, did I feel cool. I mean, this was like when it was just after the Harvard EDU when they just expanded it and there was like a lottery and uh -huh. you got in and you're like, I'm in. This is the coolest thing in the world. And now they're struggling, right? And so, and like you said, just a couple of years ago, Instagram was on top and just like that. It's not. So yes, be involved in these platforms. Yes, figure out how to do um, how to do them well, but spend time understanding how the target audience is using them and figure out ways to connect with them in a way that is relevant. Again, advertising doesn't work when you're just throwing information to people. It works when you figure out how to connect it um, in some way that's relevant. Well, and you and you just mentioned it, we're kind of talking about this too, is that your audience moved from platform to platform. So if you think that just because what they're on today is effective, they're already moving on to the next platform, next app, next area of their focus that's, that's stealing all of their attention minutes. Yeah, definitely. Discord is on everyone's radar right now. That's <laughs> yep. the new, I don't know if it's the new TikTok, but it's certainly, it's it's a little bit newer, right? So everyone's jumping there. And of course, platforms like Reddit that have much deeper conversations are great spaces as well. But for every AMA that's out there, that's great. There's also, you click on something and you're like, oh, I didn't want to see that. <laughs> and so there's, you know, those platforms are uh, offer their own very unique challenges for advertisers. This is Catherine. So what potential advertising opportunities exist with NIL? So NIL is a pretty amazing space right now. I think that there is a land rush of organizations that are jumping in. It feels like the primary focus of most of those organizations is looking for um, student athletes that have the largest potential revenue. A lot of attention is being paid to the star quarterbacks at the star schools. And that's where a lot of the larger organizations seem to be focusing a lot of their energy. But within the landscape of student athletes, there is a much, much larger pool of athletes that aren't the star quarterback. And so I think brands are going to rush in and, and make NIL deals at the highest level. And I think there's a much bigger opportunity to figure out how all those other student athletes can exist in this space, because there's a lot of brands out there that aren't necessarily looking for the starting quarterback to be the partner with their brand. And I don't know what the total number of student athletes are. I imagine it's in the hundreds of thousands. And so I think figuring out that space beyond the very, very top tier in terms of payouts is going to be one of the challenges. How is it going to work beyond that top level? Have you seen any creative executions so far? I have not. I've heard a lot of rumors, right? I mean, I do follow NIL on like Google Alerts and things like that. And it seems to be that most of the content coming across is just about the monetary contracts that are being signed, right? So someone signs a six-figure or seven-figure or eight-figure contract. That's just, again, the tip of the iceberg of what can happen in that space. I think that there's a huge opportunity for 
student athletes who have their own sort of passion projects or things that they're really passionate about, right? So if we're dealing with someone who is a gymnast, right, are there products or things related to that sport that they are particularly invested in? And is there some partnership that can exist on that level? I certainly think so. And I think that's where more of those stronger connections happen, right? You can develop an NIL deal with a car dealership and a quarterback but how tight is that connection and how long can that connection last? Whereas if you look for some of the other things that these athletes are doing and the things that they really love doing, there's a lot of potential overlap. Maybe they've used a particular brand their entire life or they're very into a specific cause. Uh, I think that's where the connections can be had. And again, I think that just from a sheer numbers perspective, there are hundreds of thousands of student athletes. And so that's where I think brands have a great opportunity to look for that relevant connection, find someone that believes in that brand. And when someone believes in a brand, they come across as a much more realistic and more authentic spokesperson. I think it's very easy for all of us. The reason we ignore advertising is because we know it's advertising. And when you're going after the very top tier person to partner with your brand, it's very easy to just dismiss that as a, a payout. But if you look for athletes that really believe in something, I think you have an opportunity to develop a huge connection with a, a very specific target audience. So I think that's still to be discovered. And right now, the big companies that are out there seem to be going for the big paychecks. And there's going to be a lot of opportunity in all these other spaces to, for NIL to expand in more meaningful ways. So it almost sounds like NIL is just an extension of racing to throw your advertising money at something. And hopefully the authenticity of the athlete is what's going to connect with your audience, but it's not necessarily proven, correct? Correct. Yes. There's a land rush into the space, right? And the, that rush is going to go towards what's going to get the biggest pop. And usually that's going to be signing the biggest athlete to the biggest contract. And again, that's, that's a quick, quick solution, right? Let's get the quarterback for University of Florida, right? Um, signed on whatever deal we can do. But in reality, it's much harder to understand whether or not that's going to be an authentic relationship that's going to build a brand. So while there's opportunities to make money, I think that the opportunity, you know, from a strategy point of view, the idea of connecting a person with a brand and having a relevant message is going to be much more powerful in the long run. It takes more time. It's not as easy as just writing a check to somebody. But oftentimes the brands that aren't at the top tier, they don't have the luxury of writing big checks. And so I think brands that are on those second and third tiers are going to spend a lot more time and be much more deliberate in how they look for these partnerships, knowing that they need return. They, they want return. And if there's athletes that believe in the cause, that's your best spokesperson, right? If the athlete believes in it, they're going to authentically promote it rather than just say, all right, I have a six-month contract to promote your car dealership and next six months I'll go to a different car dealership. Yep. This week it's domestic. Next week we're going abroad. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so what, what are some of the opportunities that students at the College of Journalism have to really like dive deep and immerse themselves in the advertising field? So advertising has several different areas or specialties. And so understanding, you know, what area of advertising you want to work in is probably step one. The key areas that typically are involved in advertising are account management, strategy, certainly being on the creative side, which is making the ads, working in media, working in production, working in analytics. Those are all different areas. Um, there are a lot of different immersion opportunities within the college. Certainly the agency has been sort of a, a catalyst for that. So it works as a sort of 
teaching lab, if you will, where students from different disciplines can come together and work with real clients to solve real problems. And so they get hands-on experience, being on phone calls, being in communication, leading the development of creative assets and getting those assets into market. So that's one spot that I would point to. We certainly have a range of classes that are offered. We're bringing new classes in the creative space online in the next couple of years. So there'll be more classes in art direction and copywriting and some of those creative skill sets that we know a lot of students really want to get experience while they're here. And this work doesn't just happen in a void where it ends up on their portfolio. I mean, these these go to win big awards, correct? Certainly, there are a wonderful range of advertising competitions. The American Advertising Awards is uh, is a competition that many of our students participated in this year. We had multiple winners in that. There are other advertising competitions that we're trying to encourage our students to join and enter. It's a great opportunity to get that work out, to have it seen and evaluated by judges who work in the industry, to see how that work compares to other peers and other students. So yes, there's lots of opportunities for that work that's done in the classroom to lead to awards and hopefully to lead to some recognition that leads to future job offers as well. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your insight and taking the time to tell us a little bit about both your backstory and just kind of give us some sense of like where the advertising field is heading, all of the changes. But it seems like ultimately the audience is still in the forefront, no matter what the context is. And that's the thing that's ever changing. We still need to think about who we're trying to get the messaging to and, and how we communicate to them. So thank you for beating through all of the, the mess and clarifying exactly that what worked before is what's always going to work as far as strong marketing and, and advertising. Well, thank you. I mean, I think the role of storytelling is the kind of the key focal point, right? If you're going to tell a story, you have to have something interesting to say and you want to have a very specific audience. So thank you all for your questions and uh, thank you for inviting me here today. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for coming out. The Communicator Podcast is a production of UF's College of Journalism and Communications. Produced by Matthew Abramson, Lorenzo Pasava, and Catherine Flaherty. Go Gators! Go Gators!